Sport Clips haircut stylists understand how to make guys look their best based on their facial shape, hair texture, and lifestyle. And now Sport Clips has added a new signature scent, eucalyptus, lavender, and chamomile to their MVP haircut experience that takes relaxation up a notch. The MVP includes a seven-point massaging shampoo and their new signature scent on a perfectly steamed hot towel. What are you waiting for? Let Sport Clips stylists make you look your best. Sport Clips, the pro in men's hair. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. In the quiet moments of our lives, we can all sense that our hearts long for something, but we often don't know what that something is. We seek an answer in our phones, and while they can provide some sense of extension and fulfillment, a feeling of magic, the use of technology also comes with significant cost in individual development and interpersonal connection that we typically don't fully understand and consider. My guest today will unpack what it is we really yearn for, have technology, when misused, can direct us away from the path to fulfilling those yearnings, and how we can find true human flourishing in a world in which so much works against it. His name is Andy Crouch, and he's the author of The Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming Relationship in a Technological World. Today on the show, we talk about the trade-offs you make when you seek magic without mastery, and how we can understand our desires better once we understand ourselves as heart, soul, mind, and strength complexes who want to be loved and known. We discuss the difference between interactions that are personal versus personalized, as well as the difference between devices and instruments, and how to use your phone as the latter instead of the former. We enter a conversation with why Andy thinks we need to redesign the architecture of our relational lives and create something he calls households. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is crouch. Andy Crouch, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Great to be here. So you've got an interesting background. You studied classics at Cornell University. It's beautiful Ithaca. Yes, um, indeed. <laughs> and then after that, you went to divinity school at Boston University. You got your master's in divinity. Usually most people, they become like a, a minister or they go teach. You did a little bit of ministering, but you've spent most of your career writing about digital technology, particularly its intersection with culture and faith and philosophy. I'm curious, like, what, what drew you to explore the, the humanistic side of our digital technology? Yeah, great question. Well, I've always loved technology, even though it wasn't the thing I ended up studying. It was my first love. My dad brought home one of the very first computer terminals. I, you are probably too young to know what these were, but back when there was just a single computer for like a whole university. And so when I was a kid, I started coding. I still love to code. And so I've been fascinated with this, though it hasn't, it wasn't my vocation as a user, as a beneficiary of technology, of course, because we all are. I really got more interested in it, though, when I tried to start understanding, honestly, what was going wrong at the same time as so many things were going so right. Like the iPhones just keep getting better and better, and our tech keeps getting better and better, but people are not getting better and better. We're not getting happier and happier. That's become pretty clear. We're not getting healthier and healthier, especially in the U.S. So I started trying to get to the heart of you know, what is technology? How has it shaped us? And it, it just ends up being one of the most fundamental and interesting questions you can ask. And as a journalist and as a writer, I'm just drawn to the big, important questions. And this to me is maybe the the big, important question of our time for those of us who live in what we call the West, which is really the technological world. 
Yeah, I think this is important. I think people forget about when it comes to technology and science, what often happens is there's an advancement in technology. And then we come up with a philosophy for that technology, like how it's how we're going to integrate it into our lives. And in previous, you know, centuries, there'd be decades or centuries between innovations. So we'd have time to figure out, okay, well, what is the printing press? How are we going to, what does this mean? And now like stuff's just happening constantly and we never have time to think about, well, how, what does this mean? What is, how are we going to incorporate this into our life? What place will it have in our life? So I think a lot of people would just like, okay, this is new. I'll use it. And they don't, we don't really think about, well, what are the second order, third order effects of this? Completely. And I think this is partly because of the distinctive thing about technology. So we have a saying in our family, because my wife is actually a scientist. She's a physicist. So she does like experimental physics. And we say science is hard. Technology is easy. Or technology is easy. Science is hard. Science is slow. Science is challenging. Although the pace of scientific discovery has also accelerated. But what has really accelerated is the introduction of applications of science, which is what technology is, that are actually very easy to use. So it used to be that when people invented tools, it took a long time to make those tools really effective for human use. But now technology is so good at insinuating itself itself into our lives because it's so easy to adopt. But you can adopt it so fast without actually thinking through what are we adopting? Why are we adopting it? It's also sold <laughs> on two things. It's always sold on the premise of it's going to be, you'll be able to do something new and you won't have to do things you don't like to do. So you'll be able to do this. You won't have to do this. But we never talk about the other two things that always come with technology, which is you'll no longer be able to do something if you adopt this, or at least it'll get a lot harder. So it's not only going to expand what you can do, it's going to s- subtract what you can do. And it's not just that you won't have to do some things, but now you'll actually start to have to do things. In other words, technology has a kind of coercive quality. Once we introduce it into our lives, into our homes, it actually requires behaviors of us. With And those are often not disclosed in the sales process, you might say. <laughs> so it's, it's this combination of offering and coercion that we don't really have time to reflect on. Whereas with tools, they they entered the human story so slowly and gradually that I think societies did a better job kind of reflecting on what we were actually adopting and why. Well, can you give us an example of that, those the promises that we get with technology and the, the burdens of it? Yeah, I, I think of uh, all the reasons people get a smartphone, you know, now you'll be able to, why they get it for their kids, you know, now you'll be able to check on when their soccer game is. Like a lot of people feel like, their kidneys a smartphone just to find out when soccer practice is. And that's a really interesting example of the technology promises to expand your capabilities, but then it says, actually, now there is no other way to find out about soccer, soccer practice. So you have to have the thing to do this thing that people managed to do for many generations <laughs> before the phone, but now you have to have it. It has this coercive quality. Maybe a deeper example is is what's happened to music. I think the making of music is one of the most important things human beings do together and do as persons. And of course, technology about 100 years ago made it possible to listen to recorded music, which is an absolutely new idea in human history. Like up to 100 years ago, if you wanted music, somebody had to play. And now technology says, well, now you can just listen to whatever music you want. And with streaming, listen to almost any music you want, anytime, anywhere. And you'll no longer have to play yourself. And that sounds great. Like, what's the downside to that? 
I think the downside is, as your world becomes full of professionally made recorded music, it's at least less and less likely, even if, if not strictly speaking, less and less possible, it's less and less likely that you or someone you know will sit down and go through all the effort and all the expense and difficulty of actually learning to make music. And if you never go through that, you'll never be able to make music <laughs> yourself. And so this technology that that opens up the world of hearing music to you also closes down the possibility of making music together. Because now we're often in places where no one in the room has ever practiced enough to be able to play in a way other people would want to listen to. And so we've traded, you know, it's a, I don't know, is it a bad trade or a good trade, but it's definitely a trade. Does that make sense? That, yeah, that makes sense. And I think this trade-off that we make with technology is part of the reason, I think you make it explicit. It's one of the reasons why we feel kind of this, I don't know, ambivalence towards our technology. Mm-hmm. And you, this is what you explore in your latest book. It's called The Life We're Looking For. Is this idea, this, this idea of trade-off, is this one of the big ideas that you're trying to explore in this book? Completely. In a way, it's the trade of wanting to do magic. <laughs> Arthur C. Clarke said, any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. And that sounds like a good thing. Like, ooh, I'd like to have that. But magic is actually the way human beings talk about the ultimate trade. <laughs> so there's this whole history of people reflecting on what do you actually trade away when you decide to become a magician or a sorcerer or an alchemist. And the fundamental story of this in Western history is Goethe's poem, Dr. Faustus, about this magician, sorcerer, alchemist who makes a deal with the devil to acquire incredible power, but at the cost of his soul. And I'm not saying, I uh, well, <laughs> I don't know if I'm saying that our technology is quite the same bargain, because of course it is not based on pure imagination the way that the maybe Faust was. It's based on real things in the world that, that we've learned how they work, and that's good for human beings to learn how the world works and make use of that. But have we traded something away? And I think, we, I think we've traded away a bunch of things of great value to human flourishing in the pursuit of what we thought was sufficiently advanced technology, this kind of magical world that works on its own, world that works without us having to do anything, without us having to become anything without us having to grow or develop. And that leads to very diminished people in a very powerful world. And I think the powers that we've acquired have come at the expense of kind of our, our internal capability to really meaningfully be part of the world that we're in. Do you know where else in culture they explore this trade-off of magic and what you, Twilight Zone. Oh, Twilight. totally. Yeah. Like I, I, we, we watch it a lot in our family. And like, it seems like every other episode is about that trade-off, like sort of this Faustian bargain that people are making. Exactly. It's all over. I mean, because we we just instinctively know as human beings, I think, that there are risks in these bargains. But but because we think that all technology is about is science, basically, we're like, well, it's just STEM. It's science, technology, engineering, math. Like, what could go wrong? But I actually think it's embedded in these much deeper kind of mysterious forces that we modern people don't talk and think as much about, but that I think actually are still very much there. Well, so your book's called The Life We're Looking For. I mean, what is it that we are looking for when we turn to technology to make our lives better? Like, what what is the big thing we're looking for, you think? Hmm. Maybe I'll start with what we were originally looking for, which wasn't a device and wasn't technology. I think essentially what we're looking for is a fully 
personal life. I, I begin the, the book by saying the very first human quest is recognition. First of all, we're just looking for someone who is looking for us, which is a phrase I got from the psychiatrist, Kurt Thompson. We're looking for someone who's going to look back, who's going to regard us, pay attention to us. And in fact, none of us make it to adulthood without parents or someone who played the role of parents uh, gazing at us and beholding us, interacting with us, listening to us. Because the first thing we're looking for in a way is is love, connection. And then, and then beyond that, all the things that become possible when you feel truly loved. You become creative in the world. You grow. We grow through the process of human development into adult human beings who have tremendous bodily capabilities, strength, tremendous mental capabilities, tremendous emotional range. So we were looking for, and we still are looking for, that kind of full human life, <laughs> which I describe it as heart, soul, mind, strength, complexes designed for love. That's who we are. What we're looking for with technology, I think, comes in when the quest for real life fails or is frustrated in some way. It's actually really interesting to me to look at when do people first give a toddler a screen? Because <laughs> toddlers are given screens now, right? We hand our toddlers screens. When do we do that? When they are feeling distress, basically. The first time. Now, eventually you give it to them so they can find out when soccer practice is. But when, when you give a two-year-old an iPad, it's because that two-year-old is experiencing some frustration of being human. Maybe they're stuck in the car. Maybe they're mad at mom. Maybe they're bored, whatever. And we're like, you know what? Here, try this. And when the toddler tries it, that magical device responds to them in, in a way that other people don't as readily. It, that is, it pays unlimited attention to them. It is much easier to manipulate than the real world. Toddlers get frustrated in the real world, as do adults, because it doesn't always respond to what we want it to do. But that device and its kind of magical virtual world is designed to just be so easy to use that even a toddler can use it and feel very efficacious. So what we turn to technology for is a, a compensating simulation <laughs> of the real powers that we want, but that are too hard or too long or difficult to acquire. And for relief from the distress of being heart, soul, mind, strength, complex is designed for love in a world that's a vulnerable place and hard to be in. And technology will take away some of that distress and replace it with this kind of pretty easy, effortless sense of capacity and power. Okay, I want to dig more into this. Okay, so this idea of being a person. So, like, what we're you're making this case that we're we're seeking to be a person. Like, that's the light we're trying to develop ourselves into a person. And you say this. I like. I want to dig in more of this. This heart, soul, mind, strength complex is like. What do you? What is that? Well, it comes from you know one of the longest standing wisdom traditions in the world, the Hebrew Bible. It's it's this idea from the Hebrew scriptures that that we are. It's meant to love. It says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul. Jesus of Nazareth adds all your mind and all your strength. And I was thinking about that, and I thought, you know, that is a very good and very irreplaceably precise summary of the components of being a human being. In other words, we're not a brain without a body. We're not mind without emotion, but we're not emotion without reason. Like, you can run all the permutations or combinations. 
we are all these things together and they they interact. So heart is like emotion, desire, uh, also the will that comes from the, the desire, the, the desire to pursue something because that is that thing is beautiful or or worthwhile. It, it activates our our emotion and our activity. Mind, of course, is the capacity for cognition, reason, thinking things through. Soul is the hardest one. But I suppose it's something like depth of self. It's it's going down into the very heart of who I am that makes me distinct, perhaps, from others. And my own unique story with all its pain and all its power. And then strength is is the fact that we're embodied. We're not disembodied, mental, just mental spirits. We can't think without our bodies. <laughs> and our bodies can't exist without thinking. So, we're you know, this word complex kind of holds these all together and says... They can't be completely separated, but they are different from each other. And then I think to to turn it around, so much of modern life neglects one or more of these things <laughs> at any given time. The thing that's been most neglected, because we really built our computers on the on the model of just pure minds. Our computers are really good at the mind part of of life, as it were, but they're not that good at the strength part. And they ask very little of our strength. So when you're sitting at a computer, your body, which is meant to be moving in three planes through the world, is just totally idled, totally inactivated, practically. And we've designed technology and designed a modern world that very rarely lets us bring all four of these things back into active collaboration, which would have been just normal for human beings until the blink of an eye ago. Like most human beings, most of the time were out in a natural world that was beautiful, activated their heart. They had a sense of soul and connection to some transcendent reality that reflected itself in some ways in the depths of their being. They did, of course, think their way through the world and they were acting with their bodies. And like every day, all day, that was the human experience. And now, like how much of how much of a given day is that actually our experience in the technological world? A very small part of the day, I would say, where all four of those are happening. So we've lost something that that really we almost took for, could have taken for granted for a very long time. Yeah, and this idea of heart, soul, mind, strength complexes. You also see this in with the Greeks. Like Plato had his idea of like mm-hmm. there's three parts of us, three parts of the soul. And then you also, I mean, C.S. Lewis kind of picked up on this as well within the abolition of man, mm-hmm. where mind, chest, which is kind of like that, I guess that soul part, and then the belly, right? And they all of them have to work together to be fully human. If you take out one part, then you're no longer no longer human. Okay, and so what you're saying is that in order for these to develop, we typically, we, we interact with other people, we interact with the world around us. And I think the, the important part of, of this idea of becoming human, I want to bring in another writer that I like a lot is Wendell Berry. He writes about being, we have to think of ourselves as creatures, right? That we are, hmm. we are products of the earth. We are, we are bound here in temporal time. And if we try to go beyond that, then we somehow miss out in our development, and so you're typically the way humans mostly develop, like you're a baby and you interact with the world, you crawl, you pick up things, stick them in your mouth, um, and you're doing this <laughs> with people and you develop, I mean, over time you develop into a human being. You're saying technology kind of skips some of that stuff and we miss out on some of that development and becoming a person. Exactly. Because development mostly happens against resistance, right? So part of, I think what Barry's getting at, and he's influenced me tremendously as well, is it's even the, you know, part of being a creature is you go out in the world and the world's just really big compared to you. (laughs) Even if you just step out in the world and you just feel the smallness of being human, then it's a kind of resistance. The world is not set up to just 
actualize yourself in any easy, simple way. And so I begin every day going outside. I just stand outdoors. Before I look at a screen, I go out of doors and I stand ideally out from under a, uh, you know, a, a roof entirely. I get off a porch. I stand under the sky. Some, some days it's raining or snowing or whatever. I still stand there. And I just feel like my smallness, which strangely is not um, frightening, at least most mornings. It's, it's, it's strangely grounding. But it is a kind of resistance. It says, gosh, how, how, is, how, are, <laughs> how is little you <laughs> going to make a difference in this world? It's both an invitation and a kind of warning. And that's developmental. Like something happens to my mind, my heart, my soul, my strength when I start the day that way that invites me to figure out what the next thing is, what I can do. And then ideally, I'd be working against certain kinds of resistance. We know that strength only develops when you, you know, push muscles or pull muscles against resistive forces. But that's really true for the mind as well. It's happening for me in this conversation. Like you're asking questions that I'd, I don't know the answer to them or in a simple way know the answer. So I have to think my way through it. I'm feeling resistance as I do that. Good things are happening as I'm doing that. What technology does is it makes a lot of these things much easier. So if I have central air conditioning in my house, I never have to go outside and feel a difference of temperature or step out into a natural world where I'm no longer kind of in charge of the temperature. The computer does a lot of the thinking for me. If I need to do math, it just does the math. If I need to remember something, it just does the remembering. And that's useful, but it's not developmental. And this is, I think this is the heart of why we are so markedly lonely, anxious, and depressed is we've become very diminished people. And diminished people have a hard time finding something to do that's worthwhile in the world and have a hard time finding a way to make real connection with other people in the world. Because if everyone else has just been equally undeveloped as me, who am I connecting with? <laughs> you know, I'm connecting with like shadows or ciphers. And uh, that's an exaggeration maybe of what's where we're at, but maybe not totally missing something that has changed, is that we used to be in a world that just of necessity developed us. And now we're in a world that almost necessarily or coercively fails to develop us, just keeps us still, keeps us not engaged. And I think that's causing a lot of distress that's hard to surface until you really start paying attention to what it feels like to be us right now. All right. So human development, it there's resistance, there's frustrations, there's friction. Yeah, so yeah, we, yeah. When, that, when we experience that, we turn to technology thinking, well, maybe this can solve that issue. Exactly. And I think one of the things you talk about, I, you really hit home. I think one of the things that we're looking for as human beings, you said at the beginning, we're looking for recognition. We're looking for relationships with other people. Well, sometimes, you know, making relationships can be hard. Sometimes people don't pay attention <laughs> sometimes. to you. Sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes, you know, I mean, pretty much all the time people misunderstand you. Uh, they're frustrating. So we think, well, we can turn to technology and we get this like social media superpower. But you're making the case when we do that, we become a little bit less human, correct? Because we're not developing it exactly. to its fullest capacity. And more and more fragile, less resilient, less able to handle or know how to respond when someone doesn't get what you're saying or isn't listening, right? I mean, Sherry Turkle, who has studied so many dimensions of how media is shaping us, um, she had this really interesting series of ex 
kind of experiments or conversations in her lab at MIT with with college students who are the easy ones to get in a lab <laughs> at a college research setting. And she was she was trying to probe why do college students prefer to text rather than talk with each other, right? Why would you text your friend if you could talk with your friend? But the answer is, I think, really illuminating. The basic answer that she gets from students as she probes this in her conversations with them is they prefer to text because when you text, you are in control of the message you send. So even as we're having this conversation, there's a lot I'm not in control of. I'm not in control of what you ask. I'm not in control of how you respond. And I don't get unlimited time to figure out how to respond. I I sort of have to be in the moment, and that's vulnerable, right? But if you're texting, first of all, you've reduced the information stream tremendously. You've gone from you know, megabits of information over a voice connection like we're using, terabits if we were face-to-face, like we'd be exchanging so much information in real time. You, you take that all the way down to a few bytes of information at a time. That means that I can actually look over what I'm going to send you before I send it. I, so I'm totally in control. I never send a message I didn't mean to send, which happens all the time in real relationships. <laughs> it's much more likely you will get the message I want to send, but it also thins out the relationship. And the, the problem is the quest for control is like directly in opposition to the quest for relationship. <laughs> the more you want to be in control of a situation, the less real relationship you have because relationship is risk. It is improv. It is vulnerability. And, and you know, we would prefer not to have that. But the more we opt out of that, the less we lack the very thing we were most deeply designed for. So that trade of, well, I'll be more in control. I won't be as vulnerable. It won't be as hard. In some ways, true, but you won't have much left uh, once you've given up the things that make relationships what they are. Well, and the other thing that technology allows us to do with relationships is, okay, we can control the conversation, mm-hmm. we can control how we present ourselves to others so they like us, but we can also control like who we even interact with in the first place. I mean, a lot of the frustration that happens with relationships, you end up with people that you just don't even think like them. And, you're the, and you have to learn how to manage that. With social media or the internet, you can find people who are pretty much just like you. And you know, as soon as they interact with them, it's going to be it's going to be easy. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, easy everywhere is what technology promises. I mean, that's, to me, that's the the fundamental idea is, wouldn't it be nice if life were easy? Wouldn't it be nice if everyone pretty much had the same opinions as you do, the same style of communication as you do? And it's such a steep trade-off to how am I going to become the kind of person who can handle difficulty in the world, who could actually persuade others. I mean, this is a huge issue in our world right now. How, How does anyone ever persuade anyone now? Because we've lost the ability to attend to someone who genuinely sees or feels the world differently than I do. And to have them come to trust enough that I really know why they think what they think, what it feels like to be them. And then I can offer them an alternative account of the world, and they're like, oh, actually, that that helps make sense of something that I couldn't make sense of. But when we're siloed off from each other, and we're never encountering that real difference, we also completely lose the ability to ever persuade someone else. And then, of course, it just spirals into tiny little polarized tribes, rather than people who have actually done the hard work of, how do I listen well enough across some real difference that I could be part of a real conversation? The problem is the logic of this is ultimately it's Narcissus's mirror, right? Because 
it's interesting. I'm, I've been married for 27 years. And when my wife and I got married, one of the things our friends said about us was, oh, Andy and Catherine are so alike. Like we had the same Myers-Briggs type. We had the same, there were so many ways that we were, we seemed quite similar while we were dating and engaged. And then like the day we got married, it was like a switch flipped. And we just discovered all these ways that were so different from each other. And I never think of myself primarily these days as like my wife, even though I think if you met us, you would probably say that on an initial encounter. But the truth is, as we get to know any other person, we discover this is hard. This person does not see or feel what I see and feel. There's always moments where you're like, I would rather opt out of this and go to some other environment where I'm more in control. But the only place where you're really going to experience that is with the infinite personalization of a screen that just mirrors back to you who you are. Because the moment you encounter another person, no matter how similar they seem to be, you're going to encounter some deep chasms of difference that you'll have to bridge and that will cause conflict and strain and stress. And if you opt out of that, you are ultimately opting out of all relationship in the world. Fortunately, you know, with screens, maybe you'll be relatively palliated, <laughs> but you won't be living the life we were looking for when we started, which was to find that other face and somehow know what it was to be known by another. That you won't get. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Have you signed up for the Art of Manliness newsletter yet? Yes, we have a newsletter. You can sign up at artofmanliness.com slash newsletter, and we have two subscription options, and they're both free. First, we got our daily newsletter. It goes out every morning at five o'clock. It has the full text of the article we published the day before. So if we publish an article on Monday, you're going to have that article in your inbox, in your email, full text, uh, so you can read whenever you want, uh, whenever it's convenient for you. Emails go out Tuesday through Sunday. If that's too many emails, I get it. Sign up for our weekly digest, which goes out Saturday morning and has links to all the articles we published that uh, during the week. And with all the emails, the daily or the weekly at the bottom, we also link to archival content. We've got over 4,000 articles in AOM. All of them are still timely. They're evergreen. Uh, so the featured archival stuff at the bottom, great way to catch up on some of the stuff we've been publishing for the past 12 years. So if you want to sign up, again, this is free, artofmanless.com slash newsletter, artofmanless.com slash newsletter. Hope to see you there. Thanks for the support. If you look around, there are so many ways to make a difference. At Capella University, our FlexPath format gives you a different way to earn your degree. Take courses at your speed. Move on whenever you're ready. Education should fit your life. Learn more at capella.edu. And now back to the show. I love this distinction you make in the book about personal and personalized. Because mm. I think this is, this is, a, this is a, a useful distinction. Because I think it's what technology does. It promises us to have personal experience, but what we get is personalized experiences. Yeah. And I, I love the example that you give of uh, those, like those robo letters you get from like real estate <laughs> agents that look like they've been written by hand. It looks so real. Yeah. Like, tell us, tell us about that distinction. <laughs> I mean, I got one as I was starting the book, I was thinking about this issue of, you know, what exactly has gone wrong in our world of uh, persons. And I got this letter that it completely fooled me. I consider myself to be a pretty suspicious person, but I got this letter in the mail and it looked like a, you know, a friendly, like 10th grader had written me a note. It was sort of exuberant handwriting. And it took me like several minutes looking at the letter to realize this window salesman <laughs> had not actually written me a letter, right? And, and I thought, oh, this is what technology is getting so good at. It's getting good at simulating personal connection, 
Because of course, what do I respond most deeply to? I respond to that face I'm looking for. And so now our technology, it's a very convincing imitation of the real thing that my devices know my name, they talk to me by name, they recognize my face. But the difference between personal and personalized is very simple. In personalized encounters, there's not actually another person on the other side. It's it's a device. It's a thing. It's an algorithm. It's a program. And yes, it, it very convincingly talks to you, presents itself to you as if it knows who you are and what your unique interests and needs and so forth are. But in fact, there's no face of another person who's paying attention to you. So it's like it both totally feeds the hunger and it's also like the most lonely thing in the world because this device doesn't in fact know me or care about me or have anything to offer me other than what can benefit the system that produced the device. And that's a very different thing from a real personal encounter with another person who is more than the sum of a system of profit generation. Even if they are window salesmen, if I meet a real person, there's something real that happens ideally with that person that's not just transaction, but a personalized world is all transaction all the time. No, the personal, so I get this a lot with PR people who are pitching podcasts. Yes. Uh, oh, so oh my gosh. They use like the I template. I can only imagine. Right. And have like, I guess Dear there's- Brett. Like, yeah. Well, no, but sometimes I think there's like a macro they use. And so they can just like automatically, <laughs> but sometimes the macro doesn't work and it says, dear podcast host in parentheses. And- <laughs> Dear influencer. Right. Um, that's, that's a perfect example of, of pers- personalization, but not personal. Uh, but then you even obviously see this, this personalized ethos creep into really intimate relationships. I mean, there's apps now that can send out text messages to your spouse to like no. offer affirmation. Oh, no, or, I don't know, want to know if about this. Their anniversary, like have, uh, <laughs> and people think, well, this is good for my relationship. My wife will appreciate it. But it's like, oh, man, it just feels like a dark mirror episode. This is, this is not good. <laughs> and the veil will eventually slip. And instead of saying, dear Catherine, he'll say, dear spouse. <laughs> right. Dear spouse. Right. Uh, or, you know, they'll, you'll, you won't even, she'll say, thank you for sending that message. Like I didn't send a message. Uh, what like, message was that again? Uh, <laughs> yes, honey. <laughs> but this is like, these are our attempts at, we, we, we want personal relationships. We're looking for that connection, but we're looking for the shortcut. But in the process, we kind of, we, we dehumanize ourselves in the process. Yeah. Yes, exactly. And there just are no shortcuts. So, you know, I talk in the book about superpowers and, and a lot of tech now sells things, but you'll have coding superpowers, you'll have presenting superpowers, podcasting superpowers. Fine. I mean, there's a place for, you know, the, the amazing affordances of technology and certain kinds of work and, and all that. But there are no personhood superpowers. There's no love superpower. There's no marriage superpower. <laughs> and, and in fact, quite the opposite. The attempt to import, you know, I mean, so, to, you know, to be honest, a few moments ago, I said, how many years have I been married? And I'm not sure I got it right. I know my wife would get it right, right? So, I know she knows the exact number of years, and I took a reasonably accurate guess. I didn't take the time to do the math. Um, if she listens to this, she may say I got it wrong. Well, that's part of the relationship. Like that, for better or for worse, that's who I am. And if I, yeah, I could outsource that to a machine and have it keep track. But then there's no there's no additional quantum of relationship in that. There's just a facsimile of attention, but not the real thing. And so. 
<laughs> I, the, the quest for superpowers needs to be very, very carefully constrained and kept away from the things that matter most. Because in the areas where it matters most, superpowers actually cannot help. They undermine, they distract, and they ultimately deplete the real power we need to be human. And you end up as a Twilight Zone episode. <laughs> that is, we're, doesn't it kind of feel like that's where we are? <laughs> um, well, another point you make in the book is we often think when we use technology that we're the one who is working the technology. But what we often forget is that the technology is also working on us and shaping us. Uh, how do you think our technology shapes us unknowingly? While we are using it, right? Like, it's like the tool works on both ends, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's always been true. I mean, you use the hammer and it acts back on your neuromuscular system to reshape, I mean, literally your neurons reprogram, you know, to kind of expand in a way to uh, be able to wield that tool more and more effectively. Every moment of use in the world is rewiring my, my neural system, my reward system. And I think that we're... You know, uh, everybody brings up the social dilemma film when when I talk about this stuff and they're like, oh, yeah, do you know they've studied like our rewards? And yes, they sure have. And they know what makes us tick. But I actually think the deeper layer of this is not the not the designed interventions, like the, the ways that the algorithms really are calculated to keep you clicking. That is true. It's more the whole premise that that my life should get easier to me, that's that's actually how technology is acting on me. It's it's making me shrink from risk, shrink from productive effort, and always want a shortcut. And my brain gets very itchy and uncomfortable when I can't find the shortcut. The thing is that all creativity and generativity happens if you like persist in that discomfort of not being able to find the shortcut. The shortcut never is truly generative. It's always imitative and, and repetitive. If I want to do something really new, whether a new thought or or just like learn a new motion with my body that I haven't learned yet. I'm a, I'm a pianist. I play the piano, have trained pretty seriously as that. And when I sit down to practice, if I want to learn something really tricky, you know, with one or both hands, I have to push through that itchy sense that says, wouldn't you rather do something easy? Wouldn't you rather just play something you already know? Or for that matter, just press play and listen to somebody else play it. And it's only if I press through the resistance and the desire for a shortcut, do I come to ultimately a kind of mastery of a new thing. And our technology is just constantly training us. Don't bother with the hard thing. Choose the easy thing. And that, in that way, it's so different from tools, which are, they're not easy to use. Like even a, a simple tool like a hammer, not, not easy at all. And as you use it, it doesn't like train you to decline inability, it trains you to increase. <laughs> but I think that the way we've designed a lot of our devices, they kind of train, train us to decrease and to, to just wait for the shortcut to happen, wait for the magic to happen, rather than actually figure out how to exert ourselves in, in new and creative ways in the world. Well, I want to dig into this. You make this, um, you're not like a, a Luddite, right? Like you oh. think technology can be life enhancing and life affirming yeah. as opposed to life negating. And I like this distinction you make, the type of technology that can enhance our life. You make this distinction between devices and instruments. What are the differences between the two? 
Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up because it is so important. This is not an anti-technology book. I'm not anti-technology. I use a lot of technology. But but I do want us to totally reframe what we're looking for and redes- ultimately redesign uh, the whole stack, I think, of technology needs to be re- redesigned from devices, which basically do everything we've been talking about. They kind of replace and displace human engagement and effort. But then there's this other kind of uh, thing we make, often using very sophisticated understanding of the world from science and so forth, and very high-tech that we call instruments. And I think the three ways I see that word used a lot are medical instruments, scientific instruments, and maybe most richly uh, musical instruments. And an instrument can be very, very complex at the technical level. That is highly, you know, complicated device in one way, but it fully engages a person, ideally with heart, soul, mind, and strength all at once. So, you know, I, I grew up playing a Steinway grand piano, which is already an industrial thing. It's uh, It couldn't have been made before the modern era. There's a lot of industrial technology and in, in even an acoustic grand piano. But then often I'm in settings where I'm playing a digital piano, which is all silicon and, you know, it's it's all computational technology. But because of the way it's designed, it doesn't play itself. There's no little triangle where you just <laughs> you know, press play. It's designed to actually be played by a musician And in fact, uh, the digital thing can, in certain ways, call forth new creative acts that the acoustic thing could not, because there's new layers of interface and possibility built into the thing, but only if a human being uses it with skill. So an instrument is a kind of technology that fully uh, involves us and keeps developing us. That is, as I keep using it, I am growing, I'm developing, I'm not getting kind of cut out of the loop. I'm not taking shortcuts. I'm growing, I'm contributing, and the instrument's helping to kind of channel and amplify that. I think we could go back almost literally like, so I don't want to roll back to 100 years and not have technology anymore. I wish we could roll back 100 years and say, hey, scientists, as you're figuring this stuff out, give us instruments, not devices. (laughs) But instead, we wanted magic, right? But I think we could have said, no, no, we want all instruments. Like, you're going to design a computational interface that will give us great powers of math and memory. Okay, that's fine. But we've got to stay moving in the world. No no screens, because screens pin you to one place just for the convenience of the computer. You're not there for your own convenience. You're there because that's the only way we figured out how to build an interface. But what if we built a different kind of interface where you can move through the world the way people always did when they had real work to do or hard thinking to do, they'd get out and move around. Why not build a thinking instrument, You know, a different kind of computer? And we could go through almost every kind of domain of technology and redesign it to be much more instrument-like and much less device-like. Okay, so let's uh, for people who are listening, how could they know if they're using a device? If it like does work for them, it doesn't require any skill. You're probably using a device. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And okay. you're using an instrument if you feel like more alive at the end, like like there's a crescendo of of involvement, and if you've become something different at the end. Whereas the device, you feel often there's a great surge. Like when you're exercising these superpowers, it sort of feels very pleasurable. But then at the end, you feel kind of depleted. <laughs> I just was talking with a, a mom who lets her kid have two hours a week, a weekend on screens like video games, which is low. I mean, and good for her. And it's hard to hold the line as a parent. And she said something really interesting. She said, you know, my, my son is so eager to get to the video games for the two hours a weekend. But he sometimes at the end says, mom, I feel like trash at the end. <laughs> like that's his word for the feeling at the end of using the thing. And 
I've never felt that on a bicycle. I've never felt that playing a piano or a digital piano. I've never felt that when I've been, had a really good session, like coding on a computer where I'm really thinking through a problem and coming up with a solution. But we know that feeling like, ooh, I feel like trash. Instruments don't make you feel like trash. They make you feel I'm more fully alive and I'm actually able to let it go. That's the other interesting thing. Often the superpowers are very sticky. Like we don't want to let go. And the instrument is sort of very free. You you pick up the hammer, you work hard for a while, then you're willing to lay it down. You're not compulsive about it. You're not addicted to it, dependent on it. <laughs> yeah, you're not constantly hammering things. <laughs> I just got to keep that. hammering. I'm bored. I just, I'm going to hammer. <laughs> I'm waiting in line. I'm going to, I'm going to hammer. Yeah, exactly. Right. It, and yet guy. you can be really good with it and, and love doing it, but without compulsion. And like that world is, is just waiting for us if we asked for that instead of the magic, but we asked for the magic. Well, so, I mean, I think everyone's got a device in their pockets, the smartphone. Is it possible you think to pound your smartphone device <laughs> into a into an instrument. To- totally. And this is actually to me the, the hopeful thing about the the glowing rectangles is, you know, so to be super geeky right now, a computer is just a Turing complete universal machine, which basically means it can be it can represent any state of the world you ask it to or nearly Turing complete. And and that just means like these things can be the ultimate device. We can ask them just to do all magic all the time, or they can be the ultimate instrument. So what I've tried to do with my with my smartphone is discipline myself, and it does take practice and certain kinds of habits and certain kinds of rhythms, but, but that every time I pick it up, it's to use it as an instrument, not as a device. So I'm not using it to distract myself. I'm trying not to use it to soothe myself when I'm anxious or upset. When I'm bored, I don't take it out because I know if I'm bored, I'm likely to just use it to like assuage the boredom. So I pick it up when I need to attend to a person through the medium of a text message or a call or email, when I need to learn something about the world. And I don't do this perfectly, but but I have shifted dramatically since I started really trying to pay attention to this. I'd say like I used to be 80% device, 20% instrument, and now I think it's 80% instrument. And it, and it feels way less compulsive. I feel the weight of it in my pocket much less. I leave it behind more often without anxiety because it's no longer that magical thing. No, I mean, I, I, I stayed at a monastery a couple years ago and I come to find out, I learned that monks use computers, huh. um, yeah, yeah. but, but they treat it. It's like a tool. It's like, it's just like, it's, it's like a shovel. They just like, well, I got to get on here to upload this thing for whatever. Yep. And then they're done. Yep. And that's it. And then like to, yeah, to them, it's just another shovel. It's a hammer. Exactly. Nothing more. Exactly. It's, and it's totally possible to rewire your brain and and instincts, it's just hard. And also very hard to do. It's not an accident that you found that in a monastery because it's hard to do without a community of people who are p- pursuing this together and who ha- and also have a better life to live beyond the screen. You know, if you are really isolated and kind of your best option is the screen, it's really hard to turn that into an instrument only. It's easier when you're part of a, an intentional community that's actually pursuing something different. Well, so, you know, big argument in the book. The big thing we're looking for is relationships and connections. And we think we can get that through our digital devices, but then we come up empty-handed. We find out actually makes us feel 
we make that Faustian bargain, right? We become less human yep. in a way. But then you say, if we, if we want to, if we want that human connection that we're, we're craving, you argue we've got to find that in households. Mm. What's a household and how is it different from a family or like a small group, like a CrossFit gym or something like that? Yeah, ultimately, so there's a redesign that needs to happen with the tech itself, but there's also a kind of social architecture redesign that I think we need, which is you're only going to find the life that you're looking for with other people in an extended, durable way, which almost always means some version of living under the same roof or very close to it. You've got to be proximate enough to other people for long enough that you overcome the inherent kind of superficiality of our relationships and the transactional nature nature of our relationships in, in, in our world. And you go beyond that to something that is just deeper and more lasting. Now, that can happen in family to some extent. Some people are fortunate to marry and have children. And for a season of life, you can have that with, you know, what we call a nuclear family. But I've really become convinced that's totally inadequate for several reasons. One is I've had the very disturbing experience of discovering that the children grow up and leave, which happened to me now. <laughs> so I have two amazing young adult children who I love dearly, who probably for very good reasons are now moving into the world and they're going to form their own households and their own families. And so that's a very temporary thing. As intense as child rearing is for those of us who get to do it, it's a temporary thing. But the other thing is more generally like, the reality is many people in our world may not marry or, or and marriages end for all kinds of reasons, sometimes tragically, just some, it's it's just a, a truth. And we need a we need a kind of community that's bigger than just that nuclear unit. It needs to be ideally more intergenerational, more stages of life, more different conditions of life in a way, but it needs to be almost literally under a roof. So I lived for my first four years out of college with four or five other men, it depended on the year, in a single house. We had one bank account for those years. We each had our own lives and jobs, um, but we took that common life very seriously. We weren't monks, but for a season, we lived with a kind of intentionality of life, and it was like one of the most beneficial, formative experiences of my life. And then when my wife and I got married, instead of just moving into a single unit kind of uh, living situation. We lived for many years with other people. And I think this is a missing piece in rebuilding a social world that actually has room for the kind of relationships we're craving. Because we live such atomized individual lives, um, even when we're coupled, you know? A couple is not a big enough unit to keep personhood going. <laughs> so in the book, I'm kind of inviting us to rethink, like there's other patterns from other times and places where people lived in much, much more complex dwelling units. And ultimately we need to kind of rebuild our world to make that possible for more people. Well, the thing is there's people out there in like Silicon Valley. Like, well, this is a problem. Like people need households. So yeah, yeah, we're, yeah. we're going to develop an app <laughs> where you can sign up and you can like, I mean, I mean, you can make the case a lot of these like co-working things like we work. That, that, yeah. Yeah. That's what they're trying to do. No, but like you said, really it, it's, it's not, it's, it's a, it's a simulation. It's like, it's not, it's not the real deal. It's a simulation because of another kind of layer here, which we haven't talked a whole lot about, but it's, it's the way the technological world is all built on usefulness and productivity. So, you know, we work was, it was and is a, a beautiful idea and and a lot better space to work than many places. 
but it's all built on one slice of your life, which is your working life. And once you're not generating money to pay the monthly dues or fees or whatever, you're not part of that community. Same with CrossFit, actually, which I'm a big believer in gyms and boxes and you know whatever community you, you build for your fitness. But what happens when you're too old to participate or you become disabled in a way that you can't really you know do the workout of the day? And how does that community touch all the other aspects of your life? This is where a household is sort of indispensable because it's the one integrated environment where you're known in all your facets as a person, rather than only being there as long as you make sense transactionally for that system. Does that make sense? No, that makes sense. And I think the other thing people might be tempted to do, so like, okay, I want to I develop more household, right, in my life. And again, they'll turn to technology. They think, well, I can like, we can start these group texts with, you know, people <laughs> and yeah. they, it could help, but it's probably not going to do, it's not, it's going to require you to, like you said, do some rejiggering of your social structure in your life. And that's something that a device can't do. Yeah. Cause this is where there's just not any superpowers for the thing we most want, which is being known. You know, one way to put it is there's just a whole involuntary layer to being known. <laughs> There's all the things my housemates see in me and about me that I never intended for them to see and that I might not even know about myself. And sometimes it'll cause real conflict and they'll push back and complain or criticize or, or, or just maybe more lovingly intervene and say, do you realize you're really anxious about this? Or do you realize you've been really depressed for the last four nights and haven't done anything except lie on the couch? Like, I'm never going to put that in a text message, honestly. I'm just not going to choose to disclose that. So we have to live in environments where we can't help but be known. An environment where, like, if you fall asleep and stay asleep for a long time, someone will come check on you. Like, you're never going <laughs> to, if you have a cardiac arrest, you know, you're not going to text your friends and say, hey, by the way, <laughs> I'm incapacitated right now. <laughs> like, you need a, a place where people will notice, we haven't seen him for a while, what's going on? And that level of being known that goes beyond the what I volunteer or what I would willingly offer is actually the essence of being known. But how many of us have places where that happens regularly? Not enough, I would say. No, I've I've seen that in my own life, not just like this household thing, but in you know small groups like what I consider my communities I belong to. There's always this, this moment where people are like, "Wow, you know, we need to connect more." We, there's like not enough camaraderie, and so they'll like, "Well, we'll do this like group chat, or we'll do yeah. Discord, yeah. and this will be the thing," <laughs> and then nothing ever changes, and. And then yeah. I, I don't know. It's it's, not, it's frustrating because I think because I think a lot of people think like, oh, this is yo, you, this will be it. This is going to be the thing that fixes it. And it's like, no, it's not. It's it's not going to be that. The thing that would fix it, like short of you know moving in together, which I recommend, or giving each other keys to your house. Like, there's steps we can take. Like, you know, Catherine and I have given. There's like five people who have a key to our house who didn't a couple of years ago because we no longer live under one roof with with other people. But we we're like, we need to invite other people close enough that they could kind of let themselves in when when they want to. <laughs> but for that group, rather than the Discord or the group chat, I think the only thing that would approximate is is go on, the old word would be a pilgrimage together. That is, go somewhere hard, long, for an extended period of time, and the relationships would change. The connection would go way deeper because you'd get that involuntary quality of this extended time where other people see you without filters, not at your best, in often in challenging or adverse circumstances in some ways, and what gets forged in those, that kind of travel, that kind of pilgrimage journey 
is incredibly powerful. But in some ways, we need a group of people we're doing that pilgrimage of life with, you know, where we are, not just on special occasions. But, you know, a pilgrimage would do it in a way that a group chat won't. <laughs> and I think that you've got to still manage expectations. There's not going to be a lot of people who are going to want to do that pilgrimage. <sighs> It's true. There'll it's be true. Pe- there's going to be true. people who say, "Oh yeah, I would definitely be down for that." But then, when it finally comes to like put your chips on the table, and like, no, I have my it's cost. Yeah, my wife, I got stuff I got to do, and yeah. they'll find some reason not to go. But I think when you do find people who want to do that, like you got to just embrace it. Like embrace those people. Yes, those are the people. Those are the people, and and we a lot of people will resist it because it is costly. And it's, it's also scary. And so, you know, people will find reasons not to do things that are scary, but the good stuff is always found on the other side of that. Well, Andy, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book and your work? They can learn a little more about me at uh, my website. <laughs> it just feels so self-promotional to even say things like this. But andycrouch.com with a dash, andycrouch.com. But I also work for an organization called Praxis, and we actually help people build v- ventures and businesses that that work on this stuff. And we have a whole section on the book at praxislabs.org, labs like la- laboratory. Praxislabs.org slash life will give you a lot more, not just about the book, but how you could actually build new ventures, for-profit, non-profit along these lines. Fantastic. Well, Andy Crouch, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. This was great. My guest today was Andy Crouch. He's the author of the book, The Life We're Looking For. It's available on amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. You can find more information about his work at his website, andy-crouch.com. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash crouch. We find links to resources. We delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AOM Podcast. Make sure to check out our website at artofmanliness.com where you find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles written in about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLINESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AOM Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member you'd think we get something out of it as always thank you for the continued support until next time is brett mckay remind you on the list they went podcast put what you've heard into action if you look around there are so many ways to make a difference at capella university our flex path format gives you a different way to earn your degree Take courses at your speed. Move on whenever you're ready. Education should fit your life. Learn more at capella.edu.